Well, for those who are new um, to Sun Valley Church, if we haven't met, I'm Rick Whitmer, um, the assistant pastor. And a little while back, um, maybe a year ago or so, I began a sermon series that I continue every time I have the privilege of preaching. And we're looking at the Sermon on the Mount together during those times. And we're beginning with the Beatitudes, which is exactly where Jesus began when he preached this sermon so many years ago. And while the Sermon on the Mount is perhaps the most famous sermon in the world, it's also perhaps the most widely misunderstood sermon in the world. And as we've worked through the beginning of this Sermon on the Mount, we've seen that while there's many wrong ways to approach this sermon, there is only one right way to approach it. There's only one right way to understand it. In order to grasp the Sermon on the Mount, we must look intently at Jesus Christ who preached this sermon. He is the key to knowing it, to applying it, to treasuring it. And that's because the only way for someone to live the sermon's teachings is to be in a living relationship with Jesus Christ, to have been born again by the Holy Spirit through believing the gospel. And that is exactly why the sermon begins with the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are a painting that Jesus is doing. He's painting a portrait of a person who has been born again, who's been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. And this portrait looks an awful lot like Jesus when we get down to it, because he is the one whom his people look like. In fact, the big idea of the entire Sermon on the Mount is that those who are saved look like their Savior. That's what we've seen. And today we find ourselves in the third beatitude, which is found in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 5. Let's read it. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Well, this morning we have a very unpopular task before us, and that is to explore and to pursue Christian meekness. To explore and pursue Christian meekness. And so let's begin by making sense of meekness, seeing what it is. See, meekness is wildly unpopular. It's not something that's a conversation topic. There are no hashtag meekness Twitter signs, I think. I don't know. I'm not on Twitter, but I don't think it's probably that popular. And yet I'd suggest that unless a person has some measure of meekness, that he is still dead in his sins and does not know Jesus Christ. And I say this because of what the Beatitudes are. You see, these are not merely a list of ideals to strive for. They are a description of God's people. They're a catalog of graces that will be present in some way, shape, or form in the life of everybody who's been born again through Jesus Christ. They're non-optional. They are spirit-wrought realities. And they are graces that we're called to grow in for the rest of our lives as Christians. And I'll be transparent with you. Uh, this week going into my study, I had some idea of what meekness was, but nowhere near as much as I thought. And as I really got into it and saw what meekness is in Scripture, it uh, quickly made me uncomfortable. And I think that more than any other beatitude, this one takes me to task and exposes the sins of my heart. But I'm glad that it's here. I'm glad that we're considering it today because when we're looking at meekness, friends, we're looking at Jesus. And it's always good to look at Jesus. But before we draw out what meekness does mean, we need to confront some popular misunderstandings about meekness because it is widely misunderstood. 
this meekness idea. And you know, I think that when we're talking about meekness, everyone pretty much understands that in some way we're talking about humility. Okay, I think that one's pretty good. But how this plays out is where confusion sets in. And one of the definitions of meekness in the dictionary is this. Overly submissive or compliant, spiritless, tame. It's not exactly a popular um, idea that somebody thinks, oh, that embodies everything I've always wanted to be. <laughs> Overly compliant and submissive and spiritless. Mm. That's not biblical meekness, though. Biblical meekness is not spiritlessness. Meek people actually can have tremendous spirit and vigor. They don't passively look the other way as sin flourishes. They don't just lay down and get steamrolled by any passing villain who comes by. See, if the Beatitudes are a picture of Christ's likeness, then Christ is preeminently meek. And let me ask you, is Christ spiritless? Well, if you try to set up shop in the temple, watch our meek Savior come and drive you out with whips. <laughs> Meekness is not spiritlessness. People who are spiritless, who go through life without any passion for anything, are not meek. They are apathetic and lazy, and that's no virtue. We have to be spirited about the right kinds of things and get angry at the right kinds of things when it's appropriate and godly to do so. Meekness is entirely compatible with that. It is not spiritlessness. Meekness also is not weakness. And that's perhaps the most common misunderstanding about meekness. It is not weakness. This phrase, meek and mild, uh, often gives the impression of someone who just keeps quietly to themselves and doesn't ruffle any feathers because they're too weak to stand up to the trouble that would ensue when they do. Well, we're told that Moses was the meekest man on the face of the planet of his day. And I would ask you, is Moses, was Moses weak? When, people, when most people are well into retirement at the age of 80, Moses stood before the leading king of the day, Pharaoh, and demanded that he let God's people go. And then he led over a million stubborn and rebellious Israelites through the desert for 40 years, and he took his retirement at the age of 120. And that's only because he died. So let me ask you, was Moses weak? No. No, meekness is not weakness. One of my Bible professors a few years back was leading a group um, from his church through Israel. And as they were coming down to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, they were walking in single file line. And a thief took something from somebody at the front of the line and bolted to try to get away by running past where the back of the line was. And as my professor tells it, the meekest man he ever knew was at the back of that line, a six and a half foot ox of a man who would never hurt a fly. And as that thief ran by at sprint, I'm supposing, all he did was reach out his hands and stopped him dead in his tracks. He exerted the right amount of strength at exactly the right time. And that, my friends, is meekness. It's not weakness. Meekness also is not an unwillingness to defend yourself from physical attack or slanderous verbal assault. Some people take a pacifist stance regarding self-defense under a misguided sense of what biblical meekness is. But the word meekness does not prohibit self-defense when under deadly assault. In fact, when talking about meekness, the great Puritan Thomas Watson, he went so far as to say this, questionless, a man may take up the sword for self-preservation, 
else he comes under the breach of the sixth commandment. He is guilty of self-murder. In taking up the sword, he does not so much seek another's death as safeguard his own life. His intention is not to do hurt, but to prevent it. A meek person may defend their own lives and the lives of others. And when someone is slandered or accused and um, they're, they're accused of evil that they did not commit, meekness does not simply mean not answering the charge. Otherwise, people might get the idea that we are guilty of the very evil that we're being accused of. Meekness does not mean not speaking the truth. It does not mean letting the lie about us prevail. Meekness is not an unwillingness to answer wrongful accusation, but meekness does dictate how a person would answer. It dictates how and when a person would use force if necessary. Meekness shows us how to go about these things. So meekness is not apathy, it's not spiritlessness, it's not weakness, it doesn't mean being someone who's steamrolled and taken advantage of. So what does meekness mean? What does it mean? Well, the most biblical way that we can go about defining meekness is to follow Jesus' train of thought when he says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Jesus is alluding to something, almost quoting, and we've heard it read this morning, it's from Psalm 37. And so if we want to really be biblical in our definition of meekness, we have to go to Psalm 37. So please turn with me to Psalm 37, and we're going to see if we can't get some idea of what Jesus means when he says, blessed are the meek. Some have called this psalm an exposition of the third beatitude. And it's a, it falls into the category of what we'd call a wisdom psalm. Many of the verses reflect um, something of the flavor of Proverbs, as we would maybe have caught by now as it was read. Um, and unlike many of the Psalms, most perhaps, which are addressed to God, this Psalm is addressed to man. We have David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, giving counsel to others who would follow the Lord. And he's dealing with a question in a theological and very practical way that has kept theologians and philosophers and counselors busy for millennia. And he's dealing with this question. Why do so many evil people seem to flourish while so many righteous people seem to suffer profoundly? In other words, why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? As we saw earlier, David's basic response is this. Don't worry. The wicked may flourish today, but God's judgment is coming tomorrow. Be patient. The Lord will let no wrong go unregressed. Meekness is at the heart of this psalm, and it has everything to do with David's spirit-inspired counsel to anybody who's interested in following Jesus Christ. In the third beatitude, Jesus looks back at David and what he wrote and summarizes it in the words, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And if you would look at, me, look at verse 11 with me, um, this is the verse that Jesus had in mind. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. So as we look at what David writes in this psalm about the meek, we see at least four facets of biblical meekness, four different brushes with which he paints a picture of meekness. So first, the meek trust in the Lord. 
The meek trust in the Lord. And we see this in verse 3. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. And then go down to verses 39 and 40. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in him. The meek trust in the Lord. Meekness looks like placing your confidence in God and concerning yourself with his glory when it makes no worldly sense to do so at all because things, in fact, may be pretty dark. And it's in that circumstance that the meek looks heavenward, looks to the hand of the God who cares for them, and trusts him with their circumstances. They're not willing to compromise their integrity in order to wiggle out of whatever circumstance they find themselves in, but they know that God's got this, even if they don't know how it's going to work out, because they trust him. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. The meek man casts his burden on the Lord because he believes the Lord will sustain him. And so rather than focusing on his circumstances, he's focusing on the God of his circumstances. He refuses to grumble. He refuses to complain or give himself over to anxiety because he has a God who cares for him and promises him good. And as a meek person, he trusts in the Lord. Well, second, we see that the meek delight in God, the meek delight in the Lord. Look at verse four. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. And then verse 11, from which our beatitudes is drawn, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Everybody delights in something, even the wicked. The wicked delight in a lot of things. God's not one of them. And while the world and its enticements cast their siren call to the unsuspecting, the meek person turns to Jesus and finds in him her whole delight. The meek person delights herself in God. She knows that there is no greater treasure than Christ. So she's at her Bible drinking up as much of Jesus as she can get. She delights herself in the Prince of Peace. She spends time with God because in spending time with him, we delight in him. Well, third, the meek wait on the Lord. And this, this is so central to the idea of meekness. So central. Look at verse 7. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil desires. In verse 34, wait for the Lord. And keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. The meek are waiting on God. And when God calls us to wait on him, he's calling us to relinquish our hold on retribution, on revenge, on vengeance, when everything in our flesh cries out for it. When wrongs are done to us and we want to recoil and strike back, the meek wait on the Lord because they know that he is the God who will make all things right. When insults are thrown, friends, it often stings deeply. And our natural instinct is to want blood 
And if we don't let ourselves, if we're not watching ourselves carefully, what we end up doing is meditating on the hurts that are done to us and mulling over them until they grow into deep anger and resentment, and then they grow into bitterness. This is not the way of meekness. And this is the issue that David's wrestling with in this psalm. What should the righteous do when the wicked flourish? Because they do, they do seem to flourish. The world, it would seem, belongs to those who are willing to go to any lengths in order to get what they want, often at the expense of those less fortunate. And in that kind of world, how are we supposed to have any portion? Well, he says, wait on the Lord, and he will exalt you to inherit the land, the very land that the wicked are going to do anything they can do to get. He will exalt you. Don't bear a grudge. Don't meditate on your hurts. Don't seek vengeance. Wait on the Lord. He is the God of justice, and he will establish his people, and the wicked will be swept away. And so a meek person is a waiting person, is a gentle person, a patient person, a person who forgives. In short, meekness looks like choosing to love when everything in the flesh cries out for harm. Well, finally, the meek turn away from evil. The meek turn away from evil. Basically, the meek are repenting people. Look at verses 8 through 9. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In verse 27, turn away from evil and do good, so you shall live forever. Godliness is the priority of meekness. In response to personal insult and injury, injustice, anger is the natural response. Forgiveness, graciousness, Patience and love are the supernatural response. The response of a person born again by the Holy Spirit. The response of a meek person. The meek turn away from evil that is so natural and they walk in the way of godliness, which is supernatural. They study God's commands, they preoccupy themselves with them, and they seek to love God and to love their neighbor. Even when from an external perspective, that doesn't seem like the wisest course of action. And yet they know through the lens of scripture that that's exactly the wise course of action, the only wise course of action. And the result is this, that they inherit the land. So what does Jesus mean when he refers to the meek? Let's put all these things together in a simple statement. He means that those who are trusting and delighting and waiting on God and who are turning from sin and walking in the truth, that's who is meek. Meekness means trusting in the Lord while walking in his way. That's what meekness is. Meekness means walking in the way of the Lord while trusting in him. And that is something that gets at all the various aspects of meekness that we see. Trusting in the Lord while walking in his way. And if we know our Bibles at all, it's pretty clear by this point that the way of meekness is the way of Jesus. The way of meekness is the way of Jesus. The picture that David sketches of meekness in Psalm 37 and the one that Jesus has in mind in this beatitude is the picture of Christ-likeness because, friends, Jesus is the meek one. Jesus is the meek one. And it's helpful here to remember who the author of this gospel is and what he's doing. 
Matthew is the most Jewish of the evangelists. And what I mean by, by that is this. Matthew is writing to Jews as a Jew, chalking his gospel full of Old Testament scripture to show that Jesus is the coming Messiah that they were hoping for ever since the earliest pages of scripture when God promised in the garden that he would give a seed of the woman to vanquish the serpent. The Jews have always looked for this one who would come and oftentimes looked for him in the wrong places and in the wrong way. When Jesus came, no exception, they expected a king who would conquer and ride in and defeat the Romans. And yet, Matthew is showing from the earliest pages of the Bible that contrary to their expectations, Jesus, this meek one, is the promised one who was coming. He shows that Jesus is the explicit fulfillment of a whole host of prophecies, which he alludes to or quotes throughout his gospel. And another way, a very way, uh, particular to Matthew way that he does this, is to show a number of parallels throughout the life of Jesus, as Matthew records it, between Israel's preeminent hero, Moses, and Jesus, Israel's hope. Matthew's presenting Jesus throughout his gospel as the new Moses, as the greater Moses, who leads his people on a new exodus. And this time it's not from Egypt. It's from sin and death. Matthew draws out an echo of Moses' life when he focuses on the meekness of Jesus. In that passage we heard read earlier, Matthew eleven twenty eight, we hear this call of Jesus. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. What's going on here? See that word that Jesus uses is translated as gentle? That's the same word that's translated meek in the third beatitude. Jesus is revealing himself in his meekness for our salvation. And Matthew records it in order to draw our minds back to where we've seen meekness before in Israel's greatest leader. We go back to Numbers chapter 12 and we see Moses being harassed by his own brother and sister. After all that Moses has done in speaking up for the people, in courageously leading them through the Red Sea, in guiding them through the wilderness with rebellion after rebellion after rebellion, and now his own family is calling his leadership into question. There was an uprising. And in response, rather than violently defend himself, rather than say, don't you know what I've done for you? Moses sits and he waits on the Lord and he entrusts God to do what he will. And in verse three, we read, now the man Moses was very meek, more than all people who were on the face of the earth. And when Matthew focuses on Jesus' meekness, it's to show us that Jesus is the new Moses. He's the greater Moses. You see, the Lord of glory, who eternally dwells with the, with the Father and the Spirit, took on our frail humanity for our salvation. And he did this so that he could obey the law of Moses perfectly when we did not. He did it so that he could stand condemned in our stead for our lawlessness. As the Lamb of God, he was our substitute because there had to be a substitute, otherwise we could not be saved. And he did all of this in meekness. The Apostle Peter tells us that when he was accused and reviled, he did not open his mouth in response, but entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He was meek. 
entrusting himself to the Father, just like Moses, but greater than Moses, for your salvation and for mine. And you see, this isn't the only thing that Matthew's doing to show the Old Testament fulfillment of Jesus. If you recall, actually you probably don't recall, about a year ago in our introduction sermon to the Sermon on the Mount, we looked at some parallels that um, Matthew was drawing out in the Sermon on the Mount itself. See, Jesus is not just the preacher of the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, he is the king of the Sermon on the Mount. And in the sermon, Jesus is announcing the kingdom of God with himself as the king and showing what kingdom citizens look like. And in doing this, he's not just the new Moses, but he's also the new David. He's also the new David. The word that Jesus uses for meek here only appears in this particular form four times in the New Testament, three of which are in Matthew. That's significant. And the next time we see it after Jesus says that he's gentle and lowly in heart, the next time that word is used is in Matthew 21, 5, during the triumphal entry. And it's used in the context of a quote of Zechariah 9, 9, with the coming king who would be David's son. And so he says, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. What is Zechariah talking about? Well, why is Matthew quoting Zechariah? Well, he's talking about the coming son of David who would fulfill the Davidic covenant and sit on an eternal throne as David's greater son. He's talking about Jesus. He's talking about the new David. And here comes this king riding on a donkey, not exactly the kind of animal that a conquering king would come riding on, but just as it was prophesied hundreds of years before that he would, here comes Jesus down the Mount of Olives on this animal. And how did he come? As a conquering political leader? No. That's what the people expected. But Jesus comes in his meekness. Jesus comes in his meekness. A humble and gentle ruler who saves the world by his death. He is the new David. He is the meek one. He is the meek one. Well, the main idea of the Sermon on the Mount is that those who are saved look like their Savior. And what does the Savior look like? Well, he's meek. He trusts his Father while walking in his way. He obeys the Bible for our redemption and for the glory of God. And so if the Savior is the meek one, then who are his people, his followers? Well, friends, simply put, they are the meek ones. They are the meek ones. Why? Well, because they believe the gospel and have God's spirit dwelling in them, cultivating the character of Christ, including meekness. There are people who come face to face with their utter inability to save themselves or offer God any spiritual merit because they have none. That's why they're the poor in spirit. That's the first beatitude. And recognizing this, they mourn over the sin that has caused such offense before the God that they now love and that they're coming to for salvation. They grieve that they continue to walk in sin day by day or to deal with sin day by day rather, even though they've trusted in God. They mourn over their sin, and that's the second beatitude. And it would follow that anybody who's recognized their utter need for Christ and mourned over their sin will turn away from that sin in repentance and toward God in humble trust, in meekness. And that's the third beatitude. 
You see, they build on one another. The meek ones trust the Lord while walking in his way because they have nowhere else to go. Nor do they want to, by the way. Peter said, Lord, where else do we have to go? You have the words of eternal life. When we turn to God in humble trust, what do we get? Do we not get God and all that is his? Yes, we do. And here's a question. What is God's? How about this? The world and everything in it. That's what we get. The world and everything in it. We inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is the land of the meek. Psalm 37 is behind the third beatitude, and specifically verse 11. And it says, the meek shall inherit the land. The word that's translated earth in the third beatitude can also be translated land. In fact, when the Hebrew Bible, our Old Testament, was translated into Greek two or three hundred years before Christ came, the translators, the Greek translators, came to Psalm 3711, and they translated the word land using the same word that is translated here in this beatitude as earth. It's the same word. It's the same word, and it means the same thing. And when we see that, it's not too far of a stretch, especially knowing who Matthew is writing to, a Jewish audience, that this is a very significant and loaded term to them, and they would have understood something very specific as Jesus was preaching the Sermon on the Mount. If you read your Old Testament, you run into the word land a lot. In fact, it seems that the people of Israel are pretty concerned with land. Now, why is this, especially beginning with Abraham? Well, it's because of the Abrahamic covenant in which God promises to Abraham three specific things, a people, a land, and a blessing. A people, a land, and a blessing. The Jews were the people, Israel was the land, and ultimately, salvation through Jesus Christ was the blessing, not just for Israel, but for the whole world, Jews and Gentiles alike. Each one of those promises was made unconditionally, and this is important, they were each of them made eternally. They were made eternally. That means that God would preserve Israel and give them the promised land and ultimately bring them and all believing Gentiles to salvation through Jesus Christ forever, no matter what. Why? Because God always keeps his promises. Jesus is blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Specifically, this is a promise that the meek ones will be the inheritors of the promised land that God told Abraham and his descendants that they would get forever. Israel forfeited that land through their disobedience, but God never breaks his promises. Part of the promise of the new covenant was that God would give his people a new heart and bring them once again into the land where they would love and walk with and enjoy the Lord forever. What kind of heart would they get? A heart that loves and trusts the Lord. A meek heart. A love for Jesus Christ alone. And Jesus makes clear what happens to a person when his heart trusts in him. That person becomes meek, trusting in the Lord for his circumstances, not trying to get his own way in whatever way he can. And what does that person inherit? The land. 
which the Lord is going to establish when he returns and takes his place on David's throne. The meek will inherit the land promises made to Abraham for Israel. They get the promised land with Jesus, whether they're Jew or Gentile, because they trust in Jesus, who alone is Israel's Messiah, who will establish the land. And we see Jesus returning to take a seat on David's throne in Revelation 20, and he reigns with his saints, with his meek ones, for a thousand years. And then, you know what happens after that? Revelation 21 and 22. A new heaven and a new earth. Where we see not just the promised land, but an eternal land. Listen to what John saw. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city. New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The old earth gives way to a new earth. The old promised land gives way to a new cosmos. And that, my friends, is the inheritance of all who are meek, who trust in Jesus Christ alone. It's being prepared for his dwelling with his people face to face. This is the ultimate inheritance of the saints. This is the earth that the meek will inherit. And friends, only the meek will inherit it. The grammar of this verse, blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth, implies that it is only the meek who will inherit the earth. Which leaves us with a question. Are we prepared to enter the land? Are you prepared to enter that land? Am I? The wording that Matthew uses here is so important. Blessed are the meek for they, they alone shall inherit the earth. Are you one of the meek? Have you taken an honest look at your life and recognized that you have nothing to contribute to your salvation? Have you recognized that Jesus and him, he alone is your sufficiency? He is your only hope. Are you sinking or swimming with Jesus? Because if you're not with Jesus, you're going to sink. If you have taken that look at your life, if you have become poor in spirit, fleeing to Jesus and crying out, I need you and you're it. Have mercy on me, O Lord, and save me, for I am yours. If you are mourning over your sin and turning daily to Christ in repentance, then friends, you are the meek. But if you have not, if you are not poor in spirit, if you are not, if you cannot surely say that you are trusting Jesus Christ alone, then hear me plainly. You will not enter the land. You will enter a place prepared for you, but it will not be with the Lord. But it doesn't have to be that way. Right now, you can become an inheritor of the land that Jesus is talking about through trusting that he, by his death on the cross on your behalf, by his resurrection for your salvation, by trusting in him alone and turning away from your sins and following him, you will inherit the land right where you sit. Please do. And if you have trusted Christ and you are one of the meek who will inherit the land, then you know that you're nowhere, meek as, nowhere near as meek as you ought to be. Neither am I. Remember, this beatitude makes me squirm, and I don't think I'm the only one. Friends, let us prepare together with God's help to enter the land. The Beatitudes not only are a once-and-done situation, they are Christian graces that we are called to grow in for the rest of our lives. So the question is how? 
Well, as Spurgeon calls, calls him, um, good old Watson, Thomas Watson, gives us two ways that we could pursue this Christian grace of meekness. The first is this. Study the meek one. Spend time with the meek one. Get to know the meek one better than you imagined you ever could. You become like who you spend time with. And when we're busy spending time with Jesus, gazing on Jesus, studying Jesus in his glory, we become meek. It's a byproduct. It's a necessary and inevitable byproduct. So look at the meek one. Second, pray for meekness. Pray for meekness. If it is true that this is a grace given by God to those who are in Christ, then doesn't it make sense to appeal to the one who has the meekness to give us the meekness? It's a good strategy. Now, if you're wondering whether he's going to grant your request or not, think about this. Does God want you to become meek? Pretty safe to say that you ask, he'll give it. So take heart. Look at the meek one and pray for meekness. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's pray. Father, you are good and your steadfast love endures forever. We thank you and we praise you for this Sermon on the Mount in which we see Jesus so clearly held out to us as our only hope. We praise and we thank you that he spoke so clearly and that by your Spirit's work in us, by his illuminating grace, we may understand what he has said and that by studying his words, we may know what it is to which you're calling us. Lord, uh, very little is more unnatural for us as people than meekness. And so we need your help. Help us, Lord. Cultivate in us by your Holy Spirit through faith in you and the gospel. This meekness, which would cultivate Christ's likeness in us. Turn us from our anger to your love. Turn us from our self-defensiveness when we are slighted, insulted, and wronged to your meekness, patience, and forgiveness. Cultivate in us this fruit of the Spirit and help us to trust in you no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, knowing that you will accomplish all your purpose for us and not any of your purpose for us, and it is good, your purposes for us, you say that, not any of your good purposes for us can be thwarted Help us, O oh God, and we praise you for doing so. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen.